So we have been journeying through this uh, genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're quickly coming to an end. And so if you've been following along, you know that means we're going to do some skipping now. Uh, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn to Matthew chapter 1. If not, feel free to just look on the screen, and we'll uh, kind of move through here as we go. Um, we'll start in verse 6. Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, it says, And... Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah was the father of Asa, and Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram was the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Uh, now, maybe if you really know Old Testament history, you're saying, well, there's some names in there that there's stories about. That's true. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at that time, uh, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And we're going to stop there because Captain Z, as I like to call him, is our topic for today, Zerubbabel. So in order for us to set this in context, let me attempt to give you a one to two minute overview of all the names we just read and kind of summarize what happened in their times. And the kingdom of Israel, um, if you read it, if you've heard it this way, kind of went like this. Good king, bad king, good king, bad king, good king, bad king, good king, bad king. Like, so like Hezekiah, fairly good king, right? Manasseh, super bad king. And it kind of keeps going back and forth like this. Josiah, his name was in there, super good king uh, in all this way. But the whole time you're continuing to have, even amongst the good kings, stories like David and Solomon where there's chinks in the armor, cracks, brokenness, and over time, this truth that, that God had spoken to Solomon, that this kingdom would be ripped out from the hands of the Davidic kings, was ultimately going to happen. Uh, the kingdom ended up being divided. And so there was the northern kingdom, which became known as Israel, and the southern kingdom, which became known simply as Judah. And the northern kingdom went into exile. They were conquered by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom was conquered by the Babylonians. Maybe you heard a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. And both of them were brought into exile. They're kind of like ripped out of their land and taken into foreign places. Uh, all because, not simply because they had bad kings, but because the people, like the kings, had become characterized by their rebellion towards God, which was first and foremost noticed in their idolatry. So you have this crucial moment in the story of the Old Testament. Uh, it's captured by the prophet Ezekiel when the presence of God leaves His temple in Jerusalem. Remember the passage we read last week when the presence of God comes into the temple and the smoke everywhere and the priest can't see in front of them? Um, imagine that happening in reverse and what that would have felt like. And that happens as the exile is about to take place. And so you have then this reality of God's presence leaving His people. 
the kingdom that was built being destroyed, the temple being utterly destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and the people being ripped out of the land and taken to foreign places like Assyria and Babylon. And the context of all of it is this reality of idolatry, of worshiping other gods ahead of Yahweh, ahead of the true God. Something that is, uh, we ought to read the Old Testament and think, gosh, that seems like a pretty easy thing to fall into. And you would be correct to read it that way. And so Israel kind of has fallen on his face. This is massive catastrophe that's happening. Uh, There's a prophet, his name is Jeremiah. God uses him to speak and he says, listen, uh, especially speaking about the southern kingdom, for, for 70 years you're going to be in captivity in Babylon. And it's towards the end of those 70 years when a guy named Daniel, maybe many of you are familiar with a prophet named Daniel, some pretty famous stories. Remember when Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den? You guys know that story, right? Uh, we, the Sunday school version is young Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den. The biblical version is 80-year-old Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den, which I actually think makes it actually crazier. But that's true. Um, the book of Daniel is not chronological, which messes us up just a little bit. You've got to judge it by the kings that he's mentioning in there. What is the reason he gets thrown into the lion's den? Does anyone remember? Because he's refusing not to pray to his God. You remember? He throws the windows open. He faces towards Jerusalem and he's praying. Do you remember what he's praying for? For God to come through on that 70-year promise because the time was almost there, Right? And he's saying, God, your name is on the line. He's praying with boldness. And of course, this ends up with his being thrown in the lion's den. But that becomes awfully symbolic because God preserves him there because God is the God who's going to come through on his promise. And so eventually, uh, Babylon, this is the way God does this, Babylon is conquered by the Persians, right? And there's a king of the Persians. His name is Cyrus. And it's under the reign of Cyrus that the return from exile begins to happen. This 70-year promise is fulfilled by God. And it's in the storyline of the return from exile that we meet Zerubbabel. And his importance in the big grand story of God becomes so critical, especially as we understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. Make sense? All right, so here we go. Let me make another caveat before we jump into this. In order for you to understand the full story of Zerubbabel, you need to become familiar with the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah. You ready for that today? So we're obviously going to do a lot of jumping around and just reading a couple of verses. As I encourage you all the time, please go home and read it and make sure that what I've said is true and don't just believe it and uh, engage the text for you. We're just going to kind of take a journey to make sense of his story. And as we've done, just going to kind of try to take some big points so we can make sense of his overall story. So we meet Zerubbabel because he becomes significant in Israel's return from exile. In fact, this return that happens after the 70 years of exile really happens in what historians would say is like three major waves, right? And we know them by three different people. So the first group of Israelites that come back from exile is led by Zerubbabel. It becomes significant. He's the first one. And it's significant because he's a descendant of David. 
He's a king leading his people back to the land. The second group of exiles come back under a guy named Nehemiah, right? He gets word things aren't going so well, and he mobilizes another group. And the third group that comes back is led by a guy named Ezra. So there's all the storylines that make sense of the, of the books of the Bible and, and how they're working. So Zerubbabel is the guy who leads this first return from exile back. But we have to situate this in order for us to truly understand the story. Because all too often, even though we believe in a sovereign and omnipotent God, all too often we tend to give humanity props for doing things that God actually does. Does that make sense? So this return from exile is not a Zerubbabel thing. It is not a Nehemiah thing. It's not an Ezra thing. It's not even a Daniel thing or a people thing. It's actually a God thing. Listen to how the book of Ezra starts. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. So the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, that's that 70-year promise, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. He'll go on to say that the temple of the Most High God must be rebuilt. Now this is strange words for Cyrus, king of Persia who has no known relationship to Yahweh that we have any record of. But this is orchestrated in such a way so that we can read the story only one way. God does something supernatural in order for His people to be restored to the place He desires them to. His people didn't repent hard enough to force God's hand. Right? They didn't do enough things in order to make it happen. God does it. And God moves heaven and earth for the rescue of His people. Make sense? Think about this, that the God we worship is powerful enough to change the mind of the most powerful king in the whole known universe at the time with the snap of a finger. This is the God that we serve. We find ourselves sometimes in difficult spots And most of the plans we concoct to get out of those spots are human efforts, are they not? And yet, we serve a God who is able to do this. Now, I need to pause and make a caveat unless we take you um, in a difficult way here, right? Because many of us have prayed for God to do stuff like this. And our experience has been, He did not. And that's super frustrating, isn't it? You've prayed for healing for a friend or a loved one, and it didn't happen. You've prayed for God to move in a certain way for a job or a relationship or something significant, and it seemed to not happen. And I want to remind you that your story is part of a grander story. And it is challenging and difficult, and I don't pause to say anything intentionally trite, so please don't hear it that way. But all too often, we read the story of what God is doing only through the lens of our personal experience, not the grand redemptive story that God is telling. And so when we see God do stuff like this, that's the point of context which becomes significant. So God is a God who's moving heaven and earth for His people to be rescued and redeemed. Well, what is Zerubbabel's particular uh, commission in this venture back? 
of course, he's going to be the king, right? He's the royal descendant of David. He's going to be the king. And it's significant that he leads the first group back. But chief on his list of uh, things to do, uh, the first thing that he's got to do is help rebuild the temple, right? That's his charge, to lead the people in rebuilding the temple. And it's fraught with challenges, because this first group of people who go back are not uh, massive. Now, you can read, the, read in, in Ezra the statistics of the people, and you say, well, it's a decent amount of people. Yet yeah, not compared to the people who had filled the land over the last 70 years. People who Babylon and Assyria had imported, who were loyal to them to re-enculturate the places where, and other people who had just found themselves into there. And so what you have is, a small minority coming back to do something somewhat countercultural to what everyone else wanted. And it's fairly significant because the story tells us in Ezra and also in Haggai chapter 1 that the people aren't thrilled that this group of people has come back. And they're particularly not thrilled that they're rebuilding a temple because they're in essence trying to change the culture of what they've established for the last 70 years. And if you read it carefully, you'll find that the new locals will do anything necessary to stop them. The first thing they try to do is join forces and say, hey, let us help you build the temple, right? And they do not have good motivation in this. They intend to frustrate them at every step. Zerubbabel sniffs this out, so he's a decent leader, right? And he says, now we're going to do this ourselves. We don't think you're interested in this in a particular way. So what's the next thing this group of people do? They start bribing <laughs> the, the people who have returned from exile, paying them off not to do the thing God had called them to do. It's somewhat successful. But, the, but they continue on. And then they petition the king, right? A new king ha- has come to power, and, and the Xerxes, and they're petitioning him, and in this time, it's a weird, strange, and historically we can't figure it out. There's Cyrus, there's Xerxes, there's Artaxerxes, and there's Darius. And there's some overlap somehow, but my guess is you don't want to be bored by that this morning, so we'll just glaze over it. But the people petition the king, and they convince the king that these people shouldn't be doing this. They basically say, hey, you can't trust these people, king. And he looks at them and says, you know what, you're right, I can't trust them. Probably a fair assessment, right? Because the Israelites have proven that they don't really have allegiance to any particular person. And in essence, the the rebuilding of the temple comes to a massive halt. This is the whole reason the prophet Haggai is moved by God to speak to the people. right? Because what happens in this season is the people start building their own communities. Uh, And Haggai says, listen, you guys are building paneled houses. Did you ever live in a paneled house before? I, I, I don't know exactly what it means there. I grew up in a, in a paneled house. You know those paneling? There's stuff you nail up all around. Um, and I can tell you it wasn't necessarily luxurious. But paneled houses in this day was the height of luxury. Right? And God is saying through the prophet, you're building yourself luxurious houses, but you're doing nothing to build my house. And the people are saying things like this. Well, it's hard. There's opposition against us everywhere. These people are against us. They're fear-mongering. They're threatening us. They're making uh, terroristic uh, insinuations. And so we've decided, well, it must not be time. 
it must not be time. Now, these sound like genuinely human people, don't they? This, these people not sound like you and me, right? Well, they, well God must have something different because the thing he's asking us to do is hard. It's not going swimmingly right now. And there's people that are opposed to us trying to do this thing. So it must mean that I'm not supposed to do this for a while. And that's exactly what they do. And here we see the chink in Zerubbabel's armor because he's chief amongst them. He's doing just that. This was his whole commission to come and lead them to build this. And now everything has come to an urgent halt. And God reminds them in a pretty famous verse in Zechariah chapter 4. He says to Zerubbabel, listen, this effort was never meant to be done in any human power. I'm the one who moved the heart of the king to make this happen. I'm the one who's called you to do it. So do it and trust that in my power I can sustain you. Maybe you've heard this verse before, Zechariah chapter 4. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. The me there is the prophet Zechariah. It's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. You heard that verse before? It's not by might, nor power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Of course it's going to be challenging. Of course there's going to be opposition. Of course there's going to be people that don't want new authority, new... Uh, new cultural reality. But this is what I've called you to do. This is the life I've called you to. This is the, the, the mission that I've given to you. And so I'm asking you to go about it. Not in your own power. Of course, if you're looking at your power against the opposition, you're going to say, not a chance. But believing in my spirit. Believing in, ultimately, my intention to dwell amongst you again. The people get back to work under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Within the next handful of years, the temple is built. But what's fascinating to me about the temple rebuilding story is the order in which they build it. Now listen, I'm no master builder, and if you needed something built, you would never call on me. But I think anyone who knows things about building stuff would also agree this is a strange way of going about it. And at first glance, it makes no sense. But when we think about it a second time, it makes perfect sense. That is, if you're going to build something, a big edifice like a temple, what would you build first? Well, Zerubbabel says the first thing we're going to build is an altar, right? We're going to build an altar, which is an element that exists inside the temple. So here's the best way I can kind of illustrate this to you. I don't know what, like... The altar is obviously quite significant. So I don't know what the most significant thing that you have in your house is right now. Maybe an oven, refrigerator, I don't know, bed, television, whatever it is. Imagine that you decided that you were going to build a new house. And you bought a plot of land. And before you did anything, you got an oven. Because that's the most significant thing. And you went out and sat it on the plot of land. And then decided you would build a, build a house around it. This is exactly what happens here. Zerubbabel orders them to build an altar. And it says, then they built a foundation underneath it. I don't even know how that happens, right? And then they built the walls and the structure around it. And this makes no sense, except if we read it theologically, it makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? They had to build the altar first. 
Because it was the means by which the presence of God could come back. The sacrifice was the means by which there was covering for sin. The whole idea of coming back from exile was about God forgiving His people for their sins of adultery. How could He forgive them unless the sacrificial system was back in place? So long before foundations or walls or any ornate structures inside are built, this altar is built and sacrifices are happening. Even big festivals are happening around this altar. And we read that and think that doesn't make sense, and yet it makes perfect sense. It had to be this way. Listen to how Ezra tells the story. He says, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josedek, Joshua would be like the high priest who came back to serve in that function. And his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, they began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Skip to verse 6. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Right? It makes no sense in terms of building, and yet it makes perfect sense in terms of return from exile. Incredible. So over the next number of years, this temple is rebuilt and it's finished And they have this incredible ceremony of rededicating this new temple that's built. And uh, Zerubbabel, they gather the people who are around there. Some more people have returned from exile now. And there's this crazy thing. And it says in in Ezra that that day, the sound that came from the people that day was so loud it could be heard in great distances from where they were. But if you keep reading in Ezra, he says he explains what that sound was. He says half the people were thrilled. They were excited. And half the people were sobbing. And we think to ourselves, how could they return from exile, rebuild the temples? They're sobbing because they looked at what they had built and they remembered Solomon's temple. And this shabby thing they had constructed looked nothing like the glory of the temple that once had been. And what we come to see is that this whole project that Zerubbabel is leading is actually more a sign than a destination. Does that make sense? It's kind of like to keep my building analogies going. Like when a new neighborhood is being constructed, oftentimes the builders who do it will build a model house before they build anything else. Right? In essence, what's happening here is a model of what God intends to happen but isn't going to happen in those very moments. In fact, the prophet Haggai records it this way in Haggai chapter 2. He says, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? Right? This is at the dedication day. How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? I mean, ugh. How depressing of a dedication. Imagine a dedication ceremony and the keynote speaker gets up and says that. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And keep working, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. 
and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says in a little while, right? We don't like that sometimes in our spiritual lives, do we? When we're doing the things that God has called us to do, and He says, in a little while, right? That's frustrating for us, isn't it? In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. That last verse is super important. Because the other thing that is never recorded about this temple that the people built is that the glory of God descends upon it and dwells there. Solomon, spirit comes. Ezekiel, spirit leaves. Zerubbabel builds it and nothing. It's a sign pointing towards the future. Have you ever felt like Zerubbabel in your life? God's called you to do something. Uh, maybe not even specific. Maybe just in the sense of like, live His way in, the, in, in a broken world where there's opposition all around you. And time and again, you want to be like, ah, this is hard. Because it is hard. And people don't seem to be agreeing with what I'm trying to do. Living with justice and peace and pursuing all of these, these ideas of the kingdom of God in the midst. So maybe it's just not time. Maybe I'll just hole up and live by myself here and build a shelter around myself instead of being amongst the people for the glory of God. And maybe you keep persisting in that because you believe that God's calling you and you're building and you're building and you're living and you're living and the prayers that you're praying seem to be answered by God saying, in a little while, in a little while, my spirit's going to come. In a little while, it's going to shake the earth and the nations. In a little while, everyone is going to see that how you're living is exactly what it means to be human. Maybe you felt that way because that's exactly the life we're called to live in these days. Waiting for the soon return of Jesus to set all things right. But this whole story, this whole picture of a future is pointing towards Jesus. Because even Zerubbabel himself, God says something specific to him. He says, listen, Zerubbabel, uh, I know like it's small beginnings here, but I need you to know you're going to be big and powerful and everyone's going to know your name. And guess what? It's not going to happen in your lifetime. Here's what he says in Haggai chapter 2 about Zerubbabel. It says, The word of the Lord came again to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I'll overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I'll overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses, and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, Son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring. What a weird thing to say, right? What is he talking about? Well, kings would have signet rings that were declarations of who they were, of who their power, right? To wear it demonstrated something. So he's, in essence, saying that Zerubbabel is going to be a demonstration of God's authority as king. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. 
And of course, Zerubbabel, to what we know, doesn't experience this in his lifetime. That even he himself, not just a building he's building, is a sign, not a destination. In many ways, church, this is what it means to be human. Pointing towards something beyond yourself. Martin Luther used to say about John the Baptist that John was recognized by his finger. (laughs) And what he meant was he was always pointing to Jesus. And Zerubbabel's glory, his power, his fulfillment comes in the fact that he's pointing to Jesus. Because Jesus becomes the ultimate Zerubbabel. Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies in Haggai and ultimately in Zechariah. See, by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, when He's born in humble estate, when He comes to Bethlehem in unsuspecting ways, when He enters into the grand brokenness of this world, He enters into a Jewish reality that has actually never come back from their exile. Right? There were these three waves that happened under Cyrus, but for any number of reasons, some of which were the Israelites didn't want to come back, let's just be honest. And other reasons, most of the people never came back. And so Persian authority became Greek authority, became Seleucid authority, became Roman authority. And the people are longing for what that temple pointed forward to and what that man Zerubbabel pointed forward to. Nations and kingdoms to shake and for a full return from exile. And so when Matthew brings up this story as part of the genealogy of Jesus, what he's actually announcing is this is the Gospel of the final return from exile. Because after all, if we read the Old Testament correctly, exile was never actually a Babylonian or an Assyrian or a Persian or a Roman thing. It was a people of God thing. Because of their idolatry. And their need for forgiveness. And so exile was never about overturning human governments or powers. It was about defeating sin and death. The very thing that Jesus had come to do. And so it should not be surprising then that in John the Baptist or even in Jesus Himself, we find this interesting ritual of baptism happening. Where? In the Jordan River. Why? Because that's the best water source? Maybe, but actually most scholars would believe they're reenacting return from exile. Return uh, into the land from the exodus. Obviously cleansing themselves, seeking the forgiveness of God, aligning themselves with God, and therefore coming back. Friends, when we are baptized into Christian baptism, what we're announcing is we've been set free from exile. Do you understand that? The sin and the death that have entrapped and enslaved us are broken. And we are re-entering the land of God's blessing, what we call theologically eternal life. This is what the Gospel is. This is what Matthew is announcing when he includes someone like Zerubbabel in the genealogy of Jesus. But Jesus is not just the the first one 
to lead us back from exile. He's also the one who's going to rebuild the temple. We've been talking about this with David and with Solomon. We'll talk about it again, right? John chapter 2 is the most prolific place it happens. But all throughout the Gospels, we have Jesus seemingly referring to himself as the temple, right? John chapter 2 is, is a significant place because he says, listen, we'll destroy this temple and we'll rebuild it in three days. And it says later the disciples, after his resurrection, the disciples knew what he meant. That he was talking about himself. That he's the temple. Why did the presence of God never come into that structure Zerubbabel built? Because it was going to come in a far more powerful way. A way that was not going to just allow a group of Israelites to return from exile, but the entire world to be set free from the bondage of sin and death. Why? Because God moves heaven and earth to set His people free. Jesus is the rebuilding of the temple. And so is it not significant that Jesus chooses to rebuild the temple just like Zerubbabel did? He builds the altar first before the temple is rebuilt. John suggests that it's the resurrected tomb, the resurrected Jesus that is the full embodiment of the temple. But before we get there, we have to get to the cross of Christ where the altar is built so that sin once and for all can be dealt with, atoned for, covered, not in a reconstituted sacrificial system at a temple built by human hands, but once and for all by God Himself. Now not just moving the mind of a foreign king, but deposing the authority of Satan in this world. Do you see this, friends? That Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. And He's the ultimate Zerubbabel. Paul writes to the Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Something that Haggai might call a signet ring. And through Him, finally the powers and the authorities are shaken and deposed like was promised to Zerubbabel. Sin and death. So what does this mean for us? It means for us, when we read the Gospel, when we hear the Gospel, when we come to a season like Advent and Christmas, we're faced with some consequential questions. The first question is, have you returned from exile? Zerubbabel led it, but the people had to come. God moved the heart of Cyrus, but the people had to get on board. God defeats sin and death in His grace and mercy, but it's by our faith and embrace of this Gospel that we join the voyage back to the land of promise. And for many people, that hasn't happened. Or, there's distance between you and God. Distance that's been created by modern forms of idolatry or by your own ho-hum realization of who God is and what He's up to in the world. The announcement of Jesus, a son of Zerubbabel, is a reminder of the consequential thing that Jesus has done, is doing, and will do finally upon His return in our world. 
And it's an announcement to get up from Babylon. To get up from Assyria. To get up from whatever you've kind of bound yourself in. And head back to the close presence of God. But we do it not just for spiritual reality. We do it because there's a call on our life as humans. There's a call on our life as the people of God. That in the very same way, Zerubbabel was leading the rebuilding of the temple, but the people had to come and pick up tools and stones and whatever to rebuild it. The New Testament writers speak of us in the same way. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, says this, Ephesians chapter 2, he says, Consequentially, you are no longer foreigners. Right? You're not in Babylon and Assyria anymore, friends. The return from exile is underway, so come back. But you're fellow citizens with God's people and are also members of this household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. We're not called to return from exile simply to throw a celebration, though you ought to. It's significant what God has done. But we've been recommissioned in this place, in this world, to do our part in rebuilding the temple. You say, well, you said well, that was Jesus. Yes, it is Jesus. But now we're engaged in a process just like Zerubbabel. We're building a sign that points toward the ultimate. And the apostles and prophets, they're constantly writing about this in the New Testament. Peter says, you're living stones in this temple. Paul says, you're part of this grand edifice that God is building. Paul writes to the Corinthians that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Plural you, not individual you, by the way. Right? So how do we do this? Well, if we take up the real language of Peter, a living stone is in diametric... Like that doesn't, those words don't go together, do they? Right? You can't be living and a stone at the same time. In the same way that Paul would write to the Romans, you're a living sacrifice. Well, those two words don't go together either, do they? There's some way that we have fully given up authority over our lives, laying them down for the mission of God, and yet are living in the midst of it. You see this? That we're called to be walking, living signs and symbols of the authority of God. Announcements to this world that the exile's over. And that God has done something of utter consequence in Jesus. And it means living a wholly different way in this world. And you say, but you don't understand. You don't understand my family. You don't understand the stuff I'm in the midst of. You don't understand my work. You don't understand my neighborhood. You're right, I don't. But you wouldn't understand my stuff either. And none of us would understand what these people went through when they made it back under Zerubbabel's leadership. Point being, yeah, it's super hard. Because it's countercultural. And the culture is not interested in us building something that points towards 
and ultimate authority outside of their grasp. And yet, this is the whole reason we walk and breathe. So, when we read the Advent stories, when we remember the arrival of Jesus into the mess of this world, it is not just an idyllic story that is represented by figurines somewhere on a shelf in our house for one month out of the year. Though they're cool and you should have them. It's about remembering what God has done. And remembering the implications on our life if we have aligned ourselves with it. And ultimately looking forward to His final return to once and for all fill the corners of the earth with His glory. In Jesus, the exile is over. In Jesus, the announcement is being spoken to all corners of the earth. Rise up and come back. And if you're coming back, it's to build the temple for the glory of God. Can I pray with you?